Good everyone. I'll lead us in prayer before we begin. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that every part of your word, every part of the Bible, uh, is written for us and for our benefit and for our instruction. And so, Father, we pray that as we look at the story of this dysfunctional family from so long ago tonight, uh, that you might use it to teach us about ourselves, but more importantly about you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There's an old saying that you can uh, choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. Uh, it's actually, when you think about it, we're a family, so it applies to us as well. But anyway, we won't take it in that direction. Uh, but everyone thinks their family is strange. Uh, it's just one of my great regrets, actually, is that we tape all our sermons or podcast, whatever. What do we do to them now? There's no tape involved, is there? That's an old... But we record all the sermons, so I can't share with you all the funny stories I'd like to tell you about my family right now. But uh, uh, everyone thinks, I'll, I'll let you in on a secret, everyone thinks that someone else has a normal family and that your family is the only one that's not, that is weird. And like, no, 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 we're all weird in our own sorts of ways. But uh, I can tell you all sorts of funny stories, I will, after church, if you want to talk to me about my family. Uh, but it's not funny for some people. For some people, their families are dysfunctional and uh, it's an awful thing. It's an awful reality and it's painful, uh, especially where their families have hurt them and it's a a source of great pain for them. And surely that was how Joseph felt about his family. Uh, If you've been following along, as we picked it up from Genesis chapter 37, when he was 17, his 10 brothers sold him into slavery after they'd abused him. They sold him into slavery for 20 pieces of silver. That is a dysfunctional family. Uh, And for 20 years, he has had nothing to do with them. Not out of choice, not like he was sort of thinking, because you did that to me, I will have nothing to do with you. Uh, No, 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 it was because he was gone. He was lost. He was a slave in Egypt. Even if he had wanted to find his family, there was no way of doing it. So he has been separated from them for all this time. He has grown up and become a man, and all that time he's had nothing to do with his family. And we've sort of followed that roller coaster ride. You remember last week, Troy drew us that graph where he started up here as the favourite son. Then he was abused by his brothers and sold into slavery. Then he became sort of the top slave, but then he was falsely accused and he was put into prison at the lowest of lows. But then last week, in last week's chapter, he rose up to this sort of highest position, higher than anyone could ever dream of, where he was the second most important person in the world of that time. So he was second only to Pharaoh in Egypt and Egypt was the power of the world of that time. So Joseph was number two in the world. Uh, And we've seen how all through the story, how God has worked through the bad, excuse me, through the bad stuff. I've been talking too much today, through the bad stuff to bless Joseph and to bring about this great turn of events where he raises up to this important position. And so we've rightly focused on Joseph the whole time. So we've called our series Joseph, God at Work in a Broken World, and that's right to do. But now, at the start of chapter 42, we're actually reminded that the main focus of God's story that he wants us to learn from is not actually in Egypt. The main focus is not actually about Joseph. In fact, I've sort of uh, led you astray a little bit in saying that this is the story of Joseph, because Joseph is just a really, really important supporting actor in the play. He's not the main point. He's not the main game. Uh, The main focus that God cares about is that dysfunctional family back in Canaan 
who we haven't heard of for 20 years or whatever it is. Because remember, what is the whole story of the Bible about and the whole story of the book of Genesis? It is all about God fulfilling his promises to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Jacob, the father, back in Canaan. That is what it's all about. First of all, the promise that he would bless them and their descendants. And that's happening to Joseph down in Egypt. He's a descendant who's receiving the blessings of God. But then through them, he would bless the whole world. And that's what we're seeing down in Egypt. Uh, But you see, what is happening down there with Joseph is only important in God's scheme of things insofar as it impacts Jacob and the rest of the family back in Canaan. And so now from chapter 42, now we get to see why God had engineered all these things to put Joseph in this position in Egypt. It wasn't just to make Joseph feel good. That wasn't what it was about. And it brings us to this family reunion. Now we're doing with three chapters here. So chapter 42, chapter 43 and chapter 44. uh, And uh, the camera sort of swings across whole sweeps of things so you want to come with me I'd encourage you to come on the journey with your bible open so open up with me at chapter 42 and what happens there is that the camera swings from Joseph sitting in luxury sort of on a throne down in Egypt and it swings up to Canaan where they are all starving because the famine has hit them they're doing it tough that seven-year famine that Joseph uh, interpreted the dream about has hit them they're starving but they hear about how down in Egypt they've stored up all this grain during the good years and they have enough grain not just for themselves but for the rest of the world as well so Jacob sends the 10 brothers down to buy grain to keep them alive but the first thing you notice and we've seen as we read it before he won't let the 12th son go that is Benjamin now why wouldn't he let Benjamin go because Benjamin is his new favourite. Remember how there's been favourites the whole way through? Well, Joseph was his favourite. Well, Rachel, his favourite wife, she only had two children. Joseph, Joseph in Jacob's eyes is dead, and Benjamin. So he's saying to the other ten, you know, you lost Joseph last time. I'm not going to let you lose my other favourite. So Jacob is still this horrible example of how not to parent. He hasn't learned his lesson. He's he's still saying, here's my favourite. You guys can go down there. See if you come back alive. It'd be good if you do. Bring some grain. I'm keeping Benjamin here with me. I'm keeping him safe. So Benjamin is the new favourite. So anyway, the ten brothers join the thousands of people. That's what it would have been, wandering down into Egypt. It would have been very similar to what you see on your TV screens at the moment with the people from Syria sort of sweeping through Europe, looking for grain, really, looking for hope and food. That's what was happening here, this massive refugee crisis as people went to Egypt, the only place with food. And so in this great irony, who do they find there? They come and ask Joseph for help. Now, of course, they don't recognise him been over 20 years since they last saw him and he looks like an Egyptian Egyptians were clean shaven they wore makeup they had all different clothes all this sort of thing whereas the Canaanites men like the the brothers were full bearded and were sort of that's rougher looking people but anyway he gets there he spoke to them in Egyptian through an interpreter so he didn't even speak to them their language didn't let on he could understand what they were saying he used an interpreter and he even went by an Egyptian name he was called Zaphonath Paneah So as far as they were concerned, this was an Egyptian man who they were coming to and asking for help from. They didn't realise that it was Joseph. 
And if you look down there at verse 6, so look at verse 6, what do they do? It says, they bowed down before him with their faces to the ground. If you've been remembering and reading the whole story, you have a little bit of a laugh at that point. Because you remember how it all started? Back in chapter 37, Joseph went to his brother and said, I've had a dream where you will all come and bow down to me. And they said, get lost and killed him or tried to. Now, here they are bowing down to him. God does not lie. What God says will happen is happening now. But Joseph doesn't let on. He doesn't have a laugh with them. He starts a game with them. He says, you are spies. That's why you've come here. And they say, no, 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 we're not. We're not. And so sort of out of a hope to justify themselves, they tell the whole truth about everything to this man they've never met before. I know there was a movie back in the 1980s called The Goonies. Anyone ever see it? And there's these criminals and they're trying to get this, the fat kid, they're trying to get him to tell them where his friends are. And they say, tell us the whole truth. He says, the whole truth? So he says, back in the third grade, I mixed up vomit and I threw it on other kids. And they vomited on other kids. And he tells them everything he's done wrong. Well, that's what the 12 brothers, 10 brothers are doing here. It's like, we will tell you everything if you'll just believe us. So they say, no, no, we are 12 sons of one man. And they don't have to tell him this, but they say, one of our brothers is dead. And the other brother is back with our father in Canaan. And the irony of it is wonderful, if you think about it. They are telling the dead brother that they killed him to prove that they're trustworthy. Do you see the humour in it, the irony in it? But Joseph says to them, I don't believe you. You're spies. So I'm going to lock up nine of you in prison and one of you can go home and he can prove you're not lying by bringing to me your younger brother who you tell me exists. And so then he puts them all in jail for three days to think about it. But after three days, he brings them out and he says, actually, this is what we'll do. I'm a gracious man. I'll keep only one of you here in prison and I'll let the other nine of you go with grain to feed your family. And when you bring back that younger brother, then I'll let this one go because that will prove to me that you've been telling me the truth. If we just pause at that point, there are two responses that people make to what Joseph does through these chapters. And it's really interesting, when you do a Bible study on it with a group of people, people respond in one of two different ways to what Joseph does. The first type person says, the first response is, why is he so nice to him, to them? You know, why, why doesn't he just tell them to get lost? Why doesn't he just say, bam, bam, I'm Joseph. You've sold me into slavery. I'm not helping you. That's the first response people ask. Who would begrudge him, you know, saying to them, do you know who I am? I'm the brother you left for dead. There's no thought of revenge in this. There's just grace, which we're used to in Joseph. But we shouldn't get so used to it that we don't find it amazing. And the clue as to the way, the reason he acts the way he does is there in verse 18. Look at verse 18, where Joseph says, I fear God and therefore I'll do this. And if they were listening a bit more carefully, that would have been a hint to them that there's more to this Egyptian than meets the eye. Because, you see, he doesn't say, I fear the gods, like an Egyptian would say. He says, I fear your God, the God of the Hebrews, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. But the point is, it's Joseph's relationship with God that drives how he treats his brothers. Not the way they've treated him. That's not what drives him. What, treats him is, what drives him is his relationship with God. 
All along, he has trusted that God is in control. All along, he's looked for, even in the lowest moments, he has looked for and seen God's grace at work. And so what he does is he shows that grace to others. Because he fears the Lord, he shows grace to other people. And I can't help but think of Jesus on the cross at this point when he says to his killers, you know what Jesus says? He's hanging on the cross, forgive them because they don't know what they do. That's, that's a bit what Joseph is like here. But then other people say, but hang on, is he actually that gracious, gracious to them? Is he really that gracious? Why does he then mess around with them? If he's going to be nice to them, why not just be nice to them? Why not just give them the grain? Say, I'm Joseph. Everyone come and be happy. You know, he doesn't do that though. Why does he not just reveal himself and declare his forgiveness? And I think the reason is that Joseph needs to see that the ten brothers have changed. And so what he's doing, as we look over the next three chapters and see all these tests that he sets them, is he is testing them. You see, Joseph was going to help Jacob and Benjamin no matter what. I think that's obvious. He was going to help Jacob and Benjamin no matter what. But he's worried, are these ten just going to do to Benjamin what they did to me? Are they just going to carry on with their old sinful ways? He's testing them. Have you repented? Have you changed from the way you treated me all those years ago? And you get the first hint that there is change in them, that there is repentance there in verse 21. Look at their response in verse 21. Then they said to each other, Obviously we are being punished for what we did to our brother. We saw his deep distress when he pleaded with us, but we would not listen. That is why this trouble has come to us. And if you've been following on the whole story, you say that is just a wonderful moment, isn't it? Because there's repentance there. They're saying we did the wrong thing. These bad things that are now happening to us are because we are sinners. We, we mistreated our brother. And even if Reuben sort of does some self-justification, look at, uh, look at verse 22. It says, but Reuben replied, didn't I tell you not to harm the boy? Isn't that what we often do when we're confronted with our sin? Yeah, yeah, I did it, but you were worse. I was the best sinner of you all. But he still gets it because he says, now we must account for his blood. See, what we're seeing here is that to different levels, all of these men have changed. There is faith in them. They understand that God is in control and God has the right to judge them for what they did to Joseph. But there's, and there's none of that all too common, you know, why is God doing this to me? That's the modern Western answer to suffering. Why is God doing this to me? They say, no, 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 this is justice. This is happening to me because I'm a sinner. So who are we to complain? And Joseph, you remember, they don't realise he can understand them. They think he can't understand what they're saying to one another. He has to leave the room because he's driven to tears at this point. So he takes Simeon, the second brother, and he puts him in jail and he shows them incredible grace by not just giving them their grain to take back to Canaan and their father, he puts their money back in as well. He doesn't take any money off them. That's what we're seeing here, grace from Joseph and repentance, or at least the beginnings of it, from the brothers. 
So moving on, we're at chapter 42, verse 27 at this point, and we're now up to where we, uh, where we finished our reading before. So you haven't read this part unless you've been reading ahead, which I encourage you to do. So the nine brothers in verses 27 to 38, they go back to Jacob, but when they discover that he's put their money back in their bags, they're terrified. They think, what's this Egyptian going to do when he finds this out? He'll think we're thieves. And Jacob then says to them, well, I'm not letting Benjamin go anywhere. It's actually a beautiful moment in family relations. He says, Simeon can rot in jail. My second born, he can stay down there because I'm keeping Benjamin right here. He's a model father. You know, I've lost Joseph. Now you've lost Simeon. I'm not letting Benjamin go. So Reuben, the eldest, makes this weird offer. It is one of the weirdest moments in the Bible. He says, Father, if I don't bring Benjamin back, well, you can kill two of my sons, your grandkids. This is what you expect from Reuben. You see it all through the story. It's like he's just about to get it right and he turns and misses the mark. It's like, not yourself, Reuben. You don't think you're putting yourself forward? You put your sons forward. Okay, Reuben. And anyway, Jacob says, no, I would rather give up Simeon than risk losing Benjamin. But as we now move into chapter 43, come with me into 43, Jacob's hand gets forced because it tells us the famine gets worse and worse. And they realise we have to go back to Egypt or we'll die. But if we go back without Benjamin, they'll give us nothing. Uh, But Jacob still won't let Benjamin go. And it's at this point that Judah, the fourth-born son, so the fourth of all of them, he steps forward and he takes the lead. So Judah says, I, not my sons, I will take responsibility for Benjamin. Look at verse 9. He says, I will be responsible for him. You can hold me personally accountable. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, I will be guilty before you forever. Now you've got to think for a minute here. This is Judah. Remember when Troy preached on chapter 38 a few weeks ago about Judah, the, the immoral man who, who slept with his daughter-in-law thinking she was a prostitute and got her pregnant? And you sort of think, why is this story here? Well, it's all to set us up for this moment. You see, this is Judah. Judah who sold his brother for 20 pieces of silver. Judah who refused to care for his daughter-in-law until he treated her like a prostitute and got her pregnant. But here, finally, it's him of all the brothers who is stepping up and taking responsibility in an incredibly self-sacrificial way. Unlike Reuben, his older brother, he offers himself. This is just a wonderful reminder of how God works. If you are not a Christian and you're here with us tonight, I want you to hear this. This is how God works. God does not take perfect people and then use them to do his will. That is not how God works. God actually has no time for perfect people, at least people who think they're perfect. God takes broken sinners and forgives them, and then reshapes them to be his godly servants. See, this is a reminder. God does not write people off. There are people in your life who've turned away from Jesus and who are, who are living uh, ungodly lives. Don't write them off. Don't write them off. Whatever sin is in your past, God can forgive it. And more than that, he can change you and he can shape you to be his godly servant. That is what the gospel is all about. The gospel is not about God taking good people and making them better. 
The gospel is about God taking broken sinners like Judah and using them to do incredible things. And Judah's courage and his grace finally convinced Jacob to send them off again. And so off they go with Benjamin this time, along with the money they owed, new extra money to pay for the grain as well, and loads of gifts for this strange man in Egypt who holds their fate in his hands. And when they arrive, Joseph sees them coming with Benjamin. And Joseph freaks them out. Because remember, they're just sort of journeymen from Canaan. And the vice president of Egypt says, you have to come to my house for a party. And he puts on a massive feast. And it just makes them even more afraid. They're saying, is this a trick? Is he going to murder us? Is he going to throw us all in jail? Uh, So they offered double payment. They said, look, we haven't just brought enough money for this grain. We've brought back the money from last time as well. We're really honest guys. And then he says, don't worry about it. Keep your money. And he brings Simeon out and he gives them water to wash with. And then it gets even weirder for them because he starts asking them personal questions. He says, how's your dad? And they go, what do you care? How it? Why do you care? And then he welcomes their little brother and he says, through his interpreter, look at verse 29, he says, may God, not any God, may God, your God, be gracious to you. And they sort of think, what does this Egyptian know about our God? And then he sat them in order of their age. And they think, how does he know how old we are? But then he sort of inverts it and it's like he gives them all the stake And he says to Benjamin, here is a whole side of a cow for you. Slow cooked and, you know, however the Egyptians did it nicely. He gives this massive portion to Benjamin. And it must have freaked them out. And I think just to sort of remind us that they're all sinners, we're told right at the end of chapter 43 in one of the funny verses of the story that they basically got on the Terps together. Uh, That's what it says. What was Joseph doing? I don't mean with the drinking. I mean with the making such a big thing of Benjamin why was he doing that why did he 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 sort of single Benjamin out and say God bless you and give him five times more food than he gave any of the brothers well Benjamin was his true brother the others were children of the same father but this was a child of the same mother as well Uh, so it could just be the joy of it but I think this is more about Joseph testing his brothers again See, so he's saying to them without asking it directly, how much have you really changed? How do you cope with Benjamin being treated as the favourite? What are you going to do to him? Have you really repented or is this just all a show to get you what you need? Will, your, will Joseph's favouritism towards Benjamin sort of fan that resentment into flame again or are you different now? Which leads us into the last part of the story for this week, which is in chapter 44. So turn to chapter 44. So after the feast, Joseph sent them on their way with an abundance of food, more than they needed. But he was back to his usual tricks because he put all their money back in their bags as well. And then he hid a precious silver cup in Benjamin's luggage. So off they went, happy, overfed, and truth be told, a little under the weather. But they hadn't got far when one of Joseph's servants catches them and says, you have stolen my master's special cup of course they protest their innocence because they were innocent and they were so certain they made a very rash promise in verse 9 look there it says if any of us is found to have it he must die and we also will become my lord's slaves 
I think the steward at that point is a bit taken aback because he knows it's a setup. He says, no, don't worry about that. Uh, I don't want to do that. Uh, I'll, I'll just take the guilty one as a slave. That's what I'll do. And the rest of you can go back to your father. So they all take off their bags and make a big show of opening them to show their innocence. They get a bit of a surprise because all their money's there. And they're, oh, hang on, but there's, but there's no silver cup. But then lastly, they get to Benjamin and there it is, the stolen silver cup. But what happens next is the key and the most important verse in all three chapters. And there's a wonderful moment if you've been following the story. Look at verse 13. It says, then they tore their clothes. And each one loaded his donkey and returned to the city. Why is that so wonderful? Just think about this for a moment. 30 years ago, they tore off the clothes of their father's favourite, left him for dead, sold him into slavery and went home munching on their dinner like they didn't have a care in the world. This time, they tear their own clothes in the pain of it And instead of going home, as they were free to do, he said, you can go back with your grain. They say, no, 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 we are not leaving without our brother. They go back with Benjamin. They refuse to leave him behind. And I want to say to you, that is real change. That's what repentance looks like. Repentance is not just saying, I'm sorry for what I did. So many people misunderstand this. They they think repentance is just being sorry That's only a very small part of repentance, sort of the first part of repentance. And repentance is not even just taking responsibility for what you did in the past. Repentance is saying, now I will act differently. Now I will change. I will stop living the way I used to and I will live a new way. And you see the reality of the change in them when they fall down at Joseph's feet again. Look at verse 16. And again, it's Judah who takes the lead he says what can we say to my lord Judah replied how can we plead how can we justify ourselves God has exposed your servants iniquity we are now my lord's slaves both we and the one in whose possession the cup was found just think for a moment about what they say there maybe compare it to when you were last caught doing something when you were at school and had to go to the headmaster's office or something like that why aren't they protesting their innocence Think about it. They were innocent. They hadn't done this. It might be they thought Benjamin did steal it. I mean, the evidence was strong. In which case, Judah's offer is just admirable. You know, we will all pay the price for our brother's sin. But I think there's more than that. I think when he says there, look at it again, when he says God has exposed our iniquity, he's saying, even if we didn't do this, even if we didn't steal this cup, we are getting what we deserve. God is giving us what we deserve for our sin. God is finally giving us what we deserve for the way we treated our brother all those years ago. I keep talking about the growth of Judah, but he is a wonderful model, if you want a model, of what it is to be a repentant sinner, which is what I hope every person here is. That is what he is. He isn't a whinging bully anymore. He actually steps up and takes responsibility. He is a repentant sinner who recognises God is in control, God is just, and any grace I receive is not deserved. It's a gift of God. If you want a model for living as a repentant sinner, this is it. A model for us, modern Christians. Frankly, I wonder if I would have cried out, hang on, this isn't fair. I wonder if I would have been even half the man Judah is. Judah recognises I am a sinner. 
We don't deserve God's grace, even if we're innocent of this charge. But Joseph is adamant. He says, no, I don't want you all to pay the price. Benjamin is guilty. The rest of you go free. Go back to your dad. And now, once and for all, Judah steps forward as the real hero of the story. We're right at the end of chapter 44 in verses 18 to 34. Come to those verses with me. It's the last part of the story. Because Judah steps up and says, no, listen to me. Remember, he doesn't know who Joseph is still. He is saying to Pharaoh's man, you listen to me. He's incredibly, he's either foolish or very brave. And then he says, please listen. And he tells him the whole story, including bits Joseph didn't even know about the whole story. He tells them how Benjamin is their father's favourite son. He tells them how their father lost his other son. And he tells him how their father will die of grief if they return without Benjamin. And then he does something amazing. Do you remember he promised his father, I will give my life for Benjamin? Well, now he says, I'll do it. He says, take me and let Benjamin go. Take me, the innocent one, at least innocent of this charge of stealing the silver cup. Take me and let the guilty one go free. Just look at his final words there from verse 33. He says, now please let your servant, that's him, remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy. Let him go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father without the boy? I could not bear to see the grief that would overwhelm my father. And I keep saying it. Remember, this is Judah who sold his brother for 20 pieces of silver. This is Judah who slept with prostitutes and got his daughter-in-law pregnant. This is Judah who has lied to his father for 20-something years. Now here he is showing this incredible grace and this incredible love and this incredible courage. Here he is willing to sacrifice himself for his brother and his father, which is a wonderful testimony to God's transformation of this man. And so now I want to finish with two points that we take from Judah. The first is, I think you have to be blind to not see the way that Judah's actions point us forward to Jesus. Don't you? Even the way he talks about what he's doing is just like Jesus at the cross. Jesus, the innocent one, the only man who never sinned. Jesus, who is willing to take our place taking the punishment we deserve. Jesus, who was willing to be nailed to the cross to pay the price, not for his little brother, but for his enemies, people like us who had ignored him and rebelled against him. And interestingly, what happens is at this point, Joseph, who's been the hero of the story up until now, Joseph begins to fade out of the picture. And it's Judah who rises to the top. And it's Judah who becomes the future of God's promises. Joseph is the hero at this point, but from now on, God says, it's through Judah and his descendants that I will save my people. That's why in the end, first of all, David, King David is descended from Judah. King Solomon is descended from Judah. And ultimately, Jesus is descended from Judah. See, Judah is the Christ. Judah is the saviour at this point in history who points us forward to the great saviour who saves all of us. My second point is, Judah doesn't just point us forward to Jesus. I've said this already. Judah shows us what it looks like to be a repentant sinner, which is what we all need to be. See, Judah reminds us of the way God can work in people to transform us and make us new. When you come to faith in Jesus... 
this incredible thing happens. Matt was reading from Romans 8 before. It's a great passage to read about if you want to read it later. This incredible thing happens where God puts his Holy Spirit in us and makes us a new creation in Jesus. It is instantaneous. Our old self dies and a new person is born. The, the, the Phil Colgan who existed before March 1993 is, an, is a dead person. There is a new person who was born in March 1993 when I came to know Christ. And whenever it was that you came to know Christ, an old person died. They no longer live. You are a new creation in Jesus. That is instantaneous. But the thing is, the old body lives on. And for the rest of your life, God is doing a work of transformation in you. But the thing that the Bible tells us is, you work with God in partnership in that work of transformation. That's what the Christian life is. So what God does is he helps us put off our sin and put on godliness. He shapes us so that we will share his gospel and his love with other people. And if he can do that in Judah, if he can do that in Judah, and for that matter in all the other brothers as well, he can do it in you. Whatever sin is in your past or your present, that does not stop God saving you and transforming you and using you for his purposes. If you are a Christian... That is what God is doing in you. And he wants you to work with him in that. God transforms people. That is his business. That's what he does. I love this part of the story. I love these three chapters. I think they're my favourite part of the Joseph story. And I love it for three reasons. I love the way we see God's grace towards sinners who are very much like us. That's the first thing. I also love the way we see God at work in those sinners, bringing them not just to faith but bring them to repentance and change. And most of all, I love the way Judah rises up and points us forward to our Saviour, Jesus. Shall we pray? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the way these events from thousands of years, of years ago, recorded for us thousands of years ago, are not just history, but they speak to us tonight. And they point us forward to our wonderful saviour who is willing to sacrifice himself for us. But more than that, they show us the way you work in us. And so, Father, we pray that the work you did in Judah, you might continue in each of us here, putting off sin and bringing us to continual and ongoing repentance. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.